You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. A universe of Hollywood storytelling and intrigue awaits you now. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood by going to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. It was the bitterest winter night that the frightened people of Krasnoschelts had seen in years. The almost 1,000 Jewish people that populated the tiny Polish village pulled those closest to themselves for warmth and huddled at their windows, their eyes fixed on the village's boundaries for signs of approaching horses. Since the synagogue had been built four years previously, in 1883, the village had seen a rise in the number of assaults by Cossack invaders, and had now grown accustomed to, as they described it, the hostile world in which they lived. Almost every night, the village was the subject of invasion by the Cossacks, who vandalized their homes, sometimes burning them to the ground savagely beating the menfolk to death as their screaming children looked on. The women would be ferociously raped by laughing gangs and left to die in the snow before the whooping pillagers cantered away, leaving behind them a new set of orphans and the smoldering remains of their crimes. Occasionally, the young men that were spared were dragged behind horses to labor camps never to be seen by their families again. Sometimes the girls were carried off also to provide sport for the men at the barracks. The terrified faces at the windows could only watch as their neighbors were slaughtered or snatched away, praying that their families would escape the night alive. These attacks or pogrom riots were carried out with one aim, to eradicate and slowly dismantle the Jewish population of Poland, and the cruelty and barbarism being meted out by the marauders was having a devastating effect on the rural Jewish communities. To keep the small flame of hope alive, at least in their children's hearts, the young ones would be spirited daily to a large stable where a rabbi would whisper into their ears the history of their religion and forefathers. From time to time, the lookout posted in the stable's loft would shriek the alarm, and the children, trained meticulously by their elders, 
would crawl into a black tunnel in the earth and pull themselves through until they emerged in the cemetery, the one place that even the Cossacks would not despoil. The children would cling to each other in a damp cave beneath the gravestones and await the arrival of a guiding adult, who sometimes arrived grotesquely disfigured by their injuries. For Benjamin Vronsel, the village cobbler, and his wife Pearl, the fear was all-consuming. As the thunder of hooves arrived each night, and the screams of their friends began to echo around the small streets, Benjamin and Pearl would cling to their young daughter Anna and their son Hirsch, covering their ears as the screams grew and then were silenced. The Vonsels had known loss. Their firstborn child, Cecilia, had died at the age of four from an infection, and part of them had died with her. To be taken from another child was unthinkable, and the thought of it haunted their days. With the threat of death circling like a crow over the villages of Krosnoschelts, Pearl began to talk of flight, but Benjamin, already struggling to make ends meet, could see no way of keeping his family alive should they flee to strange lands. The only thing he owned in the world was a gold pocket watch that had been entrusted to him by his father when he was seven years old. This has belonged to eight generations of our men, Benjamin, his father had said clutched in the hands of fine men and their sons, carried from home to home. It is as precious as our blood, and I give it to you, my son. Benjamin had been a boy when his father was taken from him, and on especially bitter nights, when it seemed as though Benjamin's end was arriving, he would throw a blanket over his head and press the watch against the skin of his face. The cool of the metal and the sound of his father's voice would calm him until he fell asleep. To part with this most precious of possessions was unthinkable. The only person from the town to have ever attempted escape was a former friend of Benjamin's, a man named Voleski, who the townsfolk had regarded as the village idiot. I will go to Germany, then work my way to Hamburg, Valesky had told Benjamin one evening, many years ago. I go where the ships depart like great flying birds and sail to America. The thought of reaching this fabled land had lit up the men's imaginations that night, but years had passed and Valesky had never been heard from again. And then, one morning, Benjamin, while mending shoes in his cobbler's shop, had received a crumpled envelope, barely legible, bearing a postmark from a place called Baltimore. Inside was a hastily scrawled scrap of paper which read, Come to Baltimore. Riches. Earn two dollars a day. The streets run with gold. At the bottom, 
the name Valeski. For two nights, Benjamin Ronsell lay awake in his bed, staring up at the ceiling, and imagined a place of safety and riches for his pearl and for his children, where they could sleep in peace, without the fear that they may be awoken during the night by the cold fingers of death. But he also knew that to drag his wife and young children into the unknown and on a journey that may be fraught with hazard would be just as perilous. He must go on ahead, they both decided, and leave them behind for now. If Waleski is right and America is a land of hope, he told his wife, then I will send for you. And so it was that early on a dim spring morning in 1888, Benjamin Vonsel kissed and clutched his wife and his howling children for long minutes on the outskirts of Krasnoschelts before turning and walking into the mist and the unknown in search of a better life. The journey was long and fraught, but eventually, after almost a month of perseverance, Benjamin, almost skeletal from want of food, arrived in Hamburg, where he worked like a slave for many weeks to rebuild his fragile strength and to store up enough money for passage to the promised lands of America. During the endless voyage across the wild ocean, Benjamin struck up a conversation with a fellow refugee who advised him that the doors of America would be held wider open to a man with an American-sounding name. And so, many days later, a worn but hopeful Benjamin Vonsel presented himself to the customs officials on Ellis Island in New York. And when they asked for his name, he gave them Benjamin Warner. Unable to speak English, Benjamin made his way slowly to Baltimore, where he began the search for Valeski, inquiring as to the man's whereabouts by holding up a scrap of paper upon which was printed Valeski in a crude hand. He finally found his friend ten days later in a dark, damp cellar working by candlelight, cutting out the soles for shoes from thick leather. When Valeski saw the towering figure of gruff Benjamin Vonsel glaring down at him from the cellar doorway, he scrambled to the floor in terror. Streets of gold, bellowed Benjamin. Streets of gold indeed. You lie to me, Valeski. Valeski shrank against the wall and began to plead, but Benjamin lurched through the darkness and grabbed him, hauling him up by the scruff of his haggard shirt. For a fleeting moment, Valeski began to pray, clenching his eyes shut in anticipation of a violent blow. 
but instead, Benjamin's arms encircled his frail body and hugged him tightly. Thank you, said Benjamin. It is fine, Luntzman, my countryman, my friend. I am glad you lied to me. You are glad, said Valeski. Yes, had you told me the truth, I would not have come here. It was over a year later that Mr. Benjamin Warner met his family at the bustling railway station in Baltimore, where he'd been patiently assembling a life for them all. Pearl and the exhausted children fell into his arms, weak from relief and overcome with joy at their family's reunion. Hirsch had grown remarkably tall, and Benjamin at once noticed that his son was wearing nothing on his chest but a woolen shawl. What is this? asked Benjamin. My son, you come to your new country half-naked? Nervously, Hirsch stammered. That man, he took it. Benjamin's fist tightened with a crack, and he glared at Pearl for answers, but she shook her head and laughed. The man inside, he took it because it was filled with lice. Lice? From the ship? It had to be burned. It was the only shirt I could bring. Benjamin's face broke into a grin and he began to bellow with laughter. <laughs> My son, he cried, he comes to America without a shirt on his back. Benjamin had secured a comfortable residence for them all and slowly, the newly christened Warner family began to plant their roots in American soil. Hirsch's name was changed to Harry, Anna became Annie, and between 1884 and 1891, the Warners added five more American citizens to their dynasty. Albert, Sam, Rose and Fanny, and Henry, whose brief four years on earth were mourned ever after by his adoring parents. The work of repairing shoes kept the family in warmth and feeding, but their savings account at the local bank began to grow dusty from disuse, and there were evenings when Benjamin and Pearl slept with growling stomachs so that their children would not feel hungry. Upon the advice of a friend, Benjamin began to plot a move north to Ontario, Canada, where apparently a fabulous living could be made from trading with fur trappers. The two years spent in Ontario made the Warner family poorer than ever. Benjamin's business partner and main investor had promised that the last shipment of furs would be Benjamin's payment for the two harsh years. The payment for this last shipment would be fabulous enough to provide the family with a triumphant return to the inner states of America and to set up the Warners for life in whichever business they chose. They arrived at the warehouse for the final time to pick up their personal shipment, which had been packed and left waiting for them. Benjamin and his sons looked proudly over the packages. These two years had been the most painful in their memory. As well as facing the bitterest winds in Canada's lungs, they had lost their youngest girl, Fanny, whose tiny body could not yet stand such a murderous climate. Weary beyond reasoning, 
Benjamin opened one of the boxes to gaze at his prize, but instead of finding the furs, found tightly packed strips of paper. By the time he'd reached the town's hotel, his partner had vanished, never to be seen again. Perhaps to console themselves and perhaps to remind them of the beauty that can be found in small places, Benjamin and Pearl added another two members to their family, David and Jack. This last addition seemed to lift Pearl's crushed spirit immeasurably. She would spend straight hours cradling little Jack in her hands and staring down into his dark eyes, and he would lie silently, staring back at his mother with a curious serenity. Almost a year later, the exhausted Warner family returned to Baltimore, emotionally and financially hollowed. As the children grew, so too did their responsibilities. Annie and her sisters would rise early and begin the work of keeping house with their mother, each learning to cook and prepare food from infancy, as well as keep their house well-ordered and care for their younger siblings. Harry, Sam and Albert would disperse into the city and look for work each morning, while their father mended shoes at a small stand in the centre of town. It was Harry who hit on the idea of a street corner shoeshine stand where he and his brothers could work together. They made themselves a sign which read Five Cents a Shine in large print and set up shop. Halfway through their first day, a snarling gang of boys arrived at their stand with clenched fists and hot tempers. Their shoeshine stand Located on a nearby street corner had been silent all day, while the Warner Boys stand had enjoyed a large queue, due in no small part to the fact that the Warner's stand was two cents cheaper. The largest of the boys grabbed Harry by the scruff of the neck and spat into his eyes, shoving Harry to the floor and turning on Sam and Albert as the grimy gang behind him began to laugh. You too, he snarled. Pack up your stand and get lost before we crack your heads open like eggs. Sam and Albert exchanged frowns. The boy raised his fist and drew a breath as if to say something. But the words never came, for before they could escape his lips, Harry's fist came flying through the air, dislodging the boy from the floor, along with several teeth that clattered to the pavement like tumbling dice. The boy landed some five feet from where he'd been standing, and the gang stared at Harry, who wiped the last of the spit from his eyes and looked down at his younger brothers. You take the little two, he said, motioning to the two scraggiest-looking boys in the gang. I'll take the rest. No fair, bellowed Sam in his surprisingly deep voice. You take the little ones with Albert. Stop your arguing, said Albert. You two mop the little guys up. I can take the rest with my eyes closed. I'm the eldest, said Harry. If you're not careful, I'll make you sit the whole fight out and show you both how it's done. Hey, called the largest boy in the gang. You think you guys can take us? Do you know who we are? The Warners smiled at each other. Question is, growled Sam, do you know who we are? Fifteen minutes and a hundred or so bruises later, 
the gang knew very well who the Warners were. Over the coming weeks, the arrival of a rival shoeshine gang became commonplace, and each was sent back to their respective street corners by the flying fists of the Warner Boys, until finally every gang in town knew better. Together you are strong, Benjamin would say to them often. He gathered his boys around the kitchen table where lay a pile of wooden sticks. He picked one up and snapped it easily. Alone, the wood is weak. It breaks easily, he told them. Benjamin reached down and picked up a bunch of sticks, twisted them into a tight bundle, and held them towards his sons. This cannot break, he said. Together, you are strong. By 1896, Harry, now 15, decided to expand the family business and told his father that they should all move to Youngstown, Ohio, where a steel mill had opened, attracting thousands of immigrant workers. Harry sniffed out a vacant store in the center of town and began to repair shoes. But because funds were low, he couldn't afford a sign. To remedy this, he set up his shoe jack and tools in the shop's window and did his work there. The theatre of this drew the passing crowds who marvelled at the boy's skill. By the time his father arrived some weeks later to look over the setup, the crowds outside were reaching dizzying proportions. Benjamin instantly wrote home and told Pearl to start packing. By the end of the year, Harry had been joined in the shop window by his father and 12-year-old Albert. The back of the store was quickly converted into a grocery store and later a butchery. The heaving crowds outside the window would wend their way inside to purchase goods and to pass the time of day with the talented boys in the window. The family lived in cramped quarters upstairs sharing four rooms alongside the tanned leather which stank to high heaven. We were jammed in there like baitworms in a can, said Jack Warner later. Worst of all, though, was the leather. Because there was no room anywhere else, my father had these great slabs of leather piled up in one corner of the room, and these hides, most of them fresh from the tannery, could have walked away by themselves. On Saturday evenings, Pearl would fill a galvanized metal bath and stand it in the courtyard. One by one, each child would be called. Pearl would soap them up to their ears and then stand them in the bath and pour pitchers of cold water over their heads until the soap was gone. This system was fine in the summer, said Jack, but when there was snow on the ground, you could hear the Warner kids gasping and yelling two blocks away. In 1899, Harry and Albert opened a bicycle repair shop, and with the new bicycle craze sweeping America, it was an instant hit. Slowly, the Warner fortunes began to improve. There was money in the bank, 
plentiful food on the table each evening. The children were dressed well. There was always a roasted bird feast once a week, with hot vegetables and thick gravy. Benjamin's pipe never wanted for tobacco. But it was Sam who was dreaming a little bigger. It was 1906 and 17-year-old Sam was a hulk of a boy, tall, wide-shouldered and lantern-jawed with a lick of russet hair. But along with this heavy demeanor, he'd been blessed with a technical mind that was always hungry. The first job he ever loved came that year, when he was employed by Hales Tours a fairground attraction whose sign proudly read, Latest life-size moving picture tour, Yosemite National Park, moral and refined, pleasing to ladies, gentlemen, and children. Amazed patrons would file in through the tent flaps and climb aboard a real touring car, which sat next to a stretched white sheet. Sam would get the nod from the owner, George Hale, and would begin to steadily crank the film strip into a kinetoscope projector, which beamed its glorious pictures of Yosemite Park upon the white sheet, a scenic wonderland of which the fairground crowds of Youngstown had often heard, and which they could now regard for themselves in all its panoramic glory. George Hale would crouch behind the vehicle, rocking the bumper slightly, so that the car felt as though it were travelling through this paradise, grinning to himself as the passengers oohed and aahed. The work was hard, and the tent, unventilated, was like a furnace at times. But despite the pain in his arms at the end of the night, or the lingering odour of sweat and cigar smoke that clung to Sam's skin, he was enchanted by the world of the moving image and the effect that these simple pictures could have upon the souls of an audience. It was while he was taking a breather one night that one of the local landladies was passing and greeted Sam, who knew her casually. She happened to mention that her son, Joey, had just returned from touring with his own kinetograph projector a trip that had stripped him of every last cent he earned. I never seen him so broke, she said. It's all cause of that film machine. Sam, you maybe know someone wants to buy it? Sam's heart leapt into his throat. That evening, Sam waited until his father and brothers were assembled for dinner and told them all about the projector. The price that Joey was asking for the device was too high for Sam to afford on his own. He would need the financial backing of the family. Albert was all for it. I think it's good, he told his father. It comes with a film, rolls of tickets. We could make some money with this thing. Benjamin frowned down at his pipe and filled it carefully. He looked up at Harry, who sat with folded arms. What do you think? Harry took a breath and sat back. Pop, this movie business, it's new. It's not like Sam taking odd jobs all over the country or Albert selling soap while I help you run the store. Across the room, young Jack, who was leaning against the wall, listening eagerly, smiled, his eyes brightening. I think, 
said Harry, that this is something we can all work at, together. As this final word left his lips, Benjamin Warner's poker face evaporated. Together you are strong, he had said, and as he looked around at the expectant faces of his sons, they knew that they had his blessing. They pulled every coin they had and sold the family horse that had taken them to Canada and back, but they were still short. Let's sell the store, said Jack. No, replied Harry. The store is our security. Without it, we may starve. But where will we find the rest of the money we need, said Sam. Their father looked around at their downcast faces, then slipped a hand into his pocket. Hey, he said to Sam, and then laid onto the table his gold pocket watch. My investment. Amid the bustling carnivals and to the tune of steam organ songs and the odor of popcorn and roasted nutshells, Albert Warner's voice could be heard bellowing about the miracle of the modern age, the motion pictures that these provincial folk had heard tell of, the magic of which they could now experience for just a few cents. The shows were crammed to bursting every time, and the queues snaked awkwardly past the other exhibitors. Enraptured faces gasped and grinned as the great train robbery played out in flickering blue from the lens of the kinetoscope, ably operated by Sam. Each night, the brothers would stash away their cash bag beneath their bunk until the banks opened the following morning. Things seemed to be going swell for the Warner family. There was just the little matter of Jack. Zing, 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 a little song. Come on and zing. Wide-eyed and with more sass than was usually healthy for an 11-year-old. Jack would fervently kiss his mother's cheek after breakfast and then disappear into the back streets of Youngstown until the evening. As the seventh child of ten, he was fated to be overlooked from the beginning. And maybe sensing this, he determined to mark himself out as the family rebel. At the Westlake's crossing district of Youngstown, Jack joined a street gang and flunked out of school much to his parents' dismay. Youngstown in those days was one of the toughest cities in America, he said later, and a gathering place for Sicilian thugs active in the mafia. There was a murder or two almost every Saturday night in our neighborhood, and knives and brass knuckles were standard equipment for the young hotheads on the prowl. And we could sing a little love song. But as soon as Jack had fallen in love with the idea of joining a gang, He'd fallen out of it. Fizzing with energy, he then proposed the career in show business and found one almost immediately by singing at the main theatres across town, appearing at the bottom of the bill. I wanna sing a little song. Each week he would land a new spot somewhere and would excitedly instruct his fatigued family to put on their best and come and see him sing. And each week they would arrive to listen to the energetic tones of Jack 
who happily screeched a medley of musical standards with a luminous grin, while the many patrons of the theatre would wince in agony at the high notes and shrink into their seats at the low ones. I can't understand it, Jack said one morning over breakfast. Why would someone hire me in the morning and fire me in the evening? Perhaps because you told them you were a singer, said Harry. In nearby Newcastle, Harry, Sam and Albert located a former inn and drew their plans to open a full-time movie theatre. To fund this endeavour, they sold the bicycle shop and with the proceeds put down a long-term lease on the inn. They had chosen the place because the front door was a large round arch flanked by two pillars and just inside a line of electric bulbs hung in a neat line through a walkway that led to a large hall. This entry had a regal feel, as Sam said, the place smacks of class. The pillars were adorned with poster holders that would display the current attractions. Two large potted plants were positioned beneath each, and in the middle of the ornate entranceway, a booth was erected, with the words, Admission 5 Cents, printed on the glass. They named their new place of business the Cascade Theatre, and on February 2nd, 1907, the Warner Brothers officially opened for business. There was just one problem. To refurbish the run-down inn had taken every available cent they owned, and while the place was looking very spruce indeed, the large auditorium hall, with its painted white screen at one end and its projectionist platform at the other, was as empty as a bird's nest in December. Where will people sit? asked Albert. Maybe they won't mind standing, said Sam. Of course they'll mind standing, said Harry. He thought for a moment and then dashed out of the hall. Half an hour later, he returned and demanded that his brothers follow him. He took them a few doors down to a funeral parlour, where a nervous-looking undertaker was stacking his benches. We're going to rent them, explained Harry, as they carried the seats back to the cascade. I promised him five dollars a week and two movies. What if this undertaker has a funeral the same time we're running our picture? asked Albert. Don't worry, said Sam. Nobody's going to die on us. I hope you're right, said Albert. On the night of February 2nd, a specially selected group of friends and gossips made their way through the Cascade's arch and followed the lights into the main hall, where they filed onto benches, giggling nervously to each other about how ridiculous they felt. Every seat in the house was quickly occupied, apart from the front bench, which had been specially reserved for the Warner family, and Harry, who had helped everyone into their seats, signalled to Albert who closed the doors and pulled a thick curtain across it to block out any escaping light. An excited babbling of voices rang around the room as the audience waited in darkness. A dazzling white light suddenly hit the screen and the voices of the Cascade audience fell silent. Before their eyes were the words, Please read the titles to yourself. Loud reading annoys your neighbours. A second set of words suddenly appeared before them, 
Ladies, kindly remove your hats. Giggles began as hats were removed and placed in laps. And then, gentlemen, please don't spit on the floor. A brief laughter rang throughout the hall, and the words, along with the light, vanished. And then a strange sound, a slow clicking that grew in tempo. The light flickered again against the wall, then grew brighter. The clicking became a rasp as Sam's strong arm wound the crank of the kinetoscope up to speed, and taking a deep breath, he fed the film steadily in. A train exploded into view, charging with force along the tracks and heading straight for the hall. Screams erupted and several patrons leapt to their feet in panic. Just as the train seemed about to crash into the hall, it was replaced by the shrieking face of a blonde girl tied to the tracks and struggling to free herself. From the center of the hall, a man stood and yelled, Save her! Someone save that girl! Shh! came the reply from several audience members. A hero made a dash from screen left and with a swift swipe cut the girl free from her bonds, dragging her up and stealing her away just as the train thundered across the now severed ropes. The entire hall broke into jubilant applause and roars of joy almost shook the plaster from the ceiling. Sam, still cranking steadily, looked down at the half-lit faces of Albert and Harry, and the three of them grinned. A short while later, when Benjamin had shaken the hand of the final patron at the Cascades' exit, he closed the doors with a sigh, then turned to his sons who'd gathered in the centre of the hall silently. He walked carefully to where Harry, Albert, Sam, and young Jack stood, and without warning, scooped them all into his arms, crushing them to him and roaring in laughter. The following afternoon, as Harry, Sam, and Albert approached their theatre, they could hear what sounded like the crowd at a fight. Their sister, Rose, suddenly appeared at the corner and gasped, Come quick! See what's happening! The brothers rounded the corner to see a queue of patrons six deep at the door of the cascade and stretching long into the distance, spilling onto the road. Men, women, children, some dressed in their Sunday best, some still in their work clothes, but all excitedly leaning over and around each other to get a peek at the fabled cascade that had become the talk of the town. They met Benjamin and Pearl at the door, who opened the ticket booth and held out a large plate with which to catch the incoming nickels. The Warner sisters stood along the small hall. The younger Warner boys held open the door to the hall, and Jack took his position at the lights. Harry and Albert readied themselves to seat their audience, and Sam climbed his small platform and loaded the camera. Harry looked over at his family, who each swapped nervous, excited glances. Okay, he said. Let them in. As the archway doors opened, 
Nickels began to rain onto Benjamin and Pearl's plate like hailstones, and the fevered townsfolk of Newcastle began to pour into the cascade. Half an hour later, with the picture over, Sam's weary arm stopped cranking, and he took a deep breath. Harry watched the light from the projector die and looked around the hall, hoping to read the audience's faces as they rose to leave. But instead of rising from their seats, the patrons sat still, staring eagerly up at the painted wall as though the picture was still playing. Harry looked over to Albert, who hissed to Jack, The lights! Jack turned on the lights and the whole room blinked. Then each audience member turned to their neighbour and began to converse in loud raptures about the marvel that they just witnessed. Ladies and gentlemen, called Harry, but the voices of the hundred people were animated and loud, and Harry could not be heard. Frustrated, he ran to Albert and shrugged. They're not going, he said. What'll we do, said Albert. We have a line of people outside waiting to get in. Harry felt a hand on his shoulder and turned to see his father. What is going on, my son, said Benjamin. The people outside want to come in. The people here will not leave, said Harry. Benjamin looked around and then walked halfway down the hall, attempting to snag the arms of those seated, but was swatted away. I don't quite know what to do, he said, returning to his sons. We cannot be rude to them or they will not come back and we must have their business again. He looked around, thoughtfully stroking his large moustache, and then suddenly lit up with a smile. Harry and Albert watched him cross to his daughter, Rose, and whisper something into her ear. A moment later, she had hurried to the piano at the front of the hall. She seated herself and looked to her father, who was talking to Jack. Rose struck a note and Harry and Albert watched as Jack ran to the front of the hall and cleared his throat. Moments later, the turbulent voices of the hall began to fall silent, replaced by the painfully uneven singing efforts of young Jack Warner as he fired a particularly excruciating version of Sweet Adeline at the room. The innocent patrons of the Cascade Theatre were not prepared for such an ambush, and within moments had begun to file, defeated, towards the exit. Jack's cries rang shrill and bitter from his crimson face until the last man had fled for the door. Only then did Rose's fingers fall still at the piano. The Warners fell upon Jack with kisses and embraces while he looked over their shoulders at the empty seats with utter bewilderment. They all left, he said. You were great, said Sam. We couldn't have got them out of the theatre without you. Jack looked past them and out over the hall once more. The Warners' smiles began to droop. Silently, Jack passed through them and walked to the front row. They watched as he placed his hands on his hips and began to slowly shake his head. Well, he said, turning to them, I guess that means I've got a new job. When the cascade finally closed its doors that night, the Warners gathered around the waist-high pile of coins and stared down in amazement. Harry reached down and took a handful of nickels, giving one to each of his family, Here, he said, something to remember our first night 
in the movie business. Four hundred miles away, on a corner of East 79th Street, New York, the neighborhood kids had amassed to pass the time after school. Bossing the grubby boys around was the largest of them, a red-headed brute named Boo Boo Hayes, who glared from the top of the steps of his apartment building at any passerby who glanced his way. Annie, the prettiest girl in the neighborhood, leaned against the wrought iron gate and laughed to her friends. There was Marie Cody, always skipping. Rosanna, a tiny Czech girl with smudged cheeks and hot fists, who spent her afternoons dancing on the sidewalk to the sounds of a street organ. And Lily Flower, as pretty as her name, who always seemed to be emerging from some darkened corner, smiling and red-faced, and followed by a dozen or so boys. Blank's butcher wagon would trundle by at regular intervals, unwittingly carrying two or three passengers on its rear, their small legs bouncing and dragging on the rubbly road. At every window, in every doorway, bustling, chaotic life went its way, whether by the beating of dusty rugs or the merry whistling of women preparing one-pot meals for their exhausted families. And linking them all, the flapping laundry of hundreds, suspended between buildings and rippling like licks of flame in the air above them. From an apartment house opposite Boo Boo Hay's domain, a stern-faced boy of eight emerged and adjusted his cap. Boo Boo, who'd been keeping his eyes on the doorway for over an hour, smacked the arm of his lieutenant and pointed. The boy walked down the steps and watched as Boo Boo's gang got to their feet. Wearily, he rolled his eyes. What's the problem today? He called from the other side of the street. Your hair's getting redder, replied Hayes. Who told you you could have redder hair than me? Same guy who gave you a face like a pig, called the boy. The snickering died away and Hayes walked down the steps, his hands in his pockets followed by the nervously excited gang who snapped at his heels. They crossed the road to where the boy stood, his arms hanging at his sides. Boo Boo Hayes looked him slowly up and down and spat at the floor. What do you say? You heard me, Hayes. You got a face like a pig and the smell to go with it. Boo Boo Hayes leaned in close and growled through gritted teeth. I'm going to break your goddamn face, you dumb little son of a bitch. The boy raised an eyebrow and called back over his shoulder. You hear what he called you, Ma? Boo Boo Hayes looked up to see the doorway filled with the scowling face of the boy's mother, Carolyn, who leaned on her broom and regarded him with scorn. She was a strikingly beautiful woman in her late twenties, and upon first inspection, her slim frame and creamy skin may have marked her out as a softer girl. But she contained the icy blood of a Norwegian father and the hot temper of an Irish mother, and her spiky wrath was feared for six blocks in every direction. 
Boo-Boo Hayes took off his cap and turned it in his fingers, his cheeks flushed as scarlet as his hair. I'm sorry, Mrs. Cagney, he said. Carolyn looked down at her son. I thought I told you to go and fetch your father. I was waylaid by this gentleman, he smiled. Well, Jimmy, when I give you a job, I expect you to go to it immediately. Jimmy's shoulders sagged slightly. Okay, Ma. After you've defended your family's honor, that is, said Carolyn, who returned to her floor and disappeared from sight. Jimmy grinned and turned back to Boo Boo. So, you're going to break my goddamn face, huh? Fifteen minutes later, once almost a dozen of the Boo Boo Hayes gang had experienced the exquisite sting of the Cagney right hook, young Jimmy began the routine of locating his father. James Sr. was a man equally cursed and blessed. He was a tall man, thick-chested, sporting a head of shaggy, curled black hair, and when he spoke, it was with an Irish lilt so pleasant to the ear that each word landed like a warm kiss. But above all things, his wife and children included, James Sr. loved the bottle and would often spend days missing from their lives as he undertook lengthy odysseys into the belly of New York's saloons. Sometimes these absences would leave Carolyn and the children in near poverty, and it would be Jimmy that was charged with bringing home either his father or the funds to make sure that they ate. Dad was happy, 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 he said later. When I'd go to get money, he would laugh and pick me up and put me on the bar. If I'd learned a new song, he would want me to sing it, and he would give me a glass of sarsaparilla. Eventually, out would come a big roll of bills, and he would hand it over. Some nights, James Sr. would insist that his son accompany him home, which usually meant traversing a route that took in several dozen more bars, where James Sr. would pick up a selection of drinking buddies. Knowing that his mother was pacing the floor at home, Jimmy would try to hurry his father along, but sometimes it was impossible. I remember on this one night, he said, I hung back when they went into this bar, then I ran like hell and got on the 3rd Avenue L. I took the wad of bills home to my mother. On those scant occasions when Jimmy woke to find his father had returned during the night, he was handed a gang of coins and blearily instructed to run to the saloon to fetch a 25-cent bottle of rye. His father would drink it in one and happily begin his day, ruffling Jimmy's hair in thanks and sweeping him into his large arms for a kiss. On the other end of the responsibility scale stood Carolyn Cagney, her arms folded proudly, fiercely devoted to her children, Harry, Jimmy, Edward, and William. It was Carolyn who instilled in them an innate sense of willful strength. To rise above in this world, she would tell them repeatedly, you just fight. You must tear and claw and fight and never stop. Harry, the eldest of the Cagney brothers, was a quiet, sensitive child and often withdrew from the chaos of the apartment to think to reflect and dream of bigger things. 
Because of his lackadaisical approach to life, he was often passed over in favor of the energetic bulldog of the gang, Jimmy. Both William and Edward would find the Cagney fighting spirit later in life, but as kids, they were jealously guarded by the howling fists of Jimmy. And on those occasions when Jimmy could not protect his brothers, Carolyn would burst into action. The night watchman of a local factory had mistakenly identified Harry as the boy who'd urinated down the stovepipe of his guard shack and had smacked Harry across the ear. When Carolyn found out about it, she stamped to the shack, dragged the night watchman out by his ear, and proceeded to chase him down 79th Street, snapping a bullwhip at his heels as he leapt and cried his apologies. When a teacher caught Edward whispering in class, he punished the boy by snatching him up by the hair and striking him so hard around the ear that he could hear nothing but a ringing for over an hour. When informed that Carolyn Cagney was on her way to the school with blood in her cheeks, the terrified teacher fled New York City itself and did not return for almost six months. Carolyn had inherited her steely resolve from her father, a one-eyed Norwegian seaman named Captain Nelson, who ferried his barge up and down the Hudson delivering coal. Captain Nelson was the pride of the Cagney children, who loved to spend their free afternoons and weekends on the barge, where they would steer the ship and feast on the hot donuts their grandmother would make, before settling down in a huddle on the floor of the cabin to spend the night. Captain Nelson would occasionally catch Jimmy wandering the deck to investigate the workings of the barge, and the warning would always be the same. Hey, Jamesy, would come the growl. Go back where you belong. From time to time, disputes would arise between Captain Nelson and the workers who came to load and unload his coal. Invariably, these disputes would lead to fisticuffs, and it was here that the origin of Carolyn's fighting spirit could be glimpsed. He would fight anyone, said Jimmy. It didn't matter how big or how young, but unfailingly, he would get the hell knocked out of him. When he would get belted across the room in some saloon, he would crawl back to his feet and ask the guy if he'd had enough. Despite his son-in-law's reckless disregard for his family's well-being, though, Captain Nelson held a deep fondness for James Sr., even when he turned up at the barge at night with his drinking cronies. On one occasion, James arrived with a gaggle of belching roughnecks and proceeded to show them around the ship as though it belonged to him. Captain Nelson welcomed them and watched them amusedly as they stumbled around, marveling at the barge. When they arrived at the cabin that Captain Nelson called home, James picked up the Nelson family photo album and held it open for all to see, leafing through the stiff pages and introducing his buddies to photographs of his in-laws. Somewhere near the center of the book, they arrived at a picture of a stiff-looking man wearing a derby, his arms held rigidly at his sides, and a pained smile forced on his lips. From the back of the group came a comment, something to the tune of this guy being something of a lavender dandy, which sent the drunken group into hysterics. 
At this, Captain Nelson snatched down the shotgun from the wall of the cabin and waved it in their faces. Get ashore, you sons of bitches, he cried. Good God, man, we didn't mean to offend you, stammered James. It's just that when we saw that picture of your father... That's not my father, he shouted back. That's me! With that, he fired a shot at the wall which sank into the wood. The terrified men scrambled and fled, leaping and running from the river barge, and didn't stop until they were safely riding a streetcar back into the depths of the city. When Jimmy hit ten years old, the family moved to East 96th Street, and Captain Nelson and Grandma, newly retired, came to live with them in their biscuit tin of an apartment. To accommodate the extra mouths, beds had to be shared, and makeshift cots of ruffled blankets on the floor in the corner of the room were not uncommon, especially on the nights that James Sr. returned home to sleep. Without his boat, Captain Nelson was a sorry sight, and Grandma Nelson, a proud Irish molly who'd kept herself busy aboard the barge for the last few decades, was suddenly relegated to the armchair in the living room. Her offers of help refused with kind politeness. Now and then, she would insist upon contributing to the family meal and would make her famous shipboard donuts, but without the aroma and music of a clanking engine and the smell of the Hudson behind them, they never tasted quite the same. Soon afterwards, she slipped quietly to sleep one night and never woke up. Jimmy, unable to convert his grief to action, watched from shadows and doorways as the crumbling, bereft Captain Nelson wandered aimlessly throughout his days, staring blankly out of the windows, more lonely than he'd ever been, despite the buzzing of the family around him. One morning, Jimmy came out of his bedroom to find the old man standing there, and was overcome by an intense desire to show him that he was still loved. He threw his arms around his grandfather, and leaping up, kissed the old man's cheek. For a moment, they both froze in silence, and then Captain Nelson picked Jimmy up and kissed his cheek in return. They spent the day talking about the sun on the Hudson, the bookend times of the day, the early mornings, the coal men's filthy language, and of Jimmy's grandma, the finest cabin mate that a man could have asked for. It was Jimmy who, two years later, found Captain Nelson sleeping peacefully on his cot, his breath having stopped sometime during the night, and wearing a slim, crooked smile. Hey, Captain, Jimmy whispered. Go back where you belong. The craziest kid in the neighborhood was Willie Carney, a 15-year-old tank of a boy with a reputation as mean as his left cross. Willie had beaten the loyalty out of every kid for miles around, and his gang was sprawling. They would spend their afternoons watching Willie commit the most hazardous of dares, whether it was walking into oncoming traffic, 
smashing the windows of the local police station or hanging by his fingertips from the ridge that ran around the highest building on the block. When he wasn't risking his life to prove his bravery, he was knocking the stuffing out of the other kids. Willie Carney wasn't afraid of anything, especially not of the red-headed scrapper he'd been hearing so much about who lived up on East 96th Street. Collecting a few dozen of his gang, Carney marched to the Cagney apartment block, but instead of finding Jimmy, found 11-year-old Edward alone at the foot of the steps, bouncing a golf ball against the stone and singing quietly to himself. He'd been suffering from the flu for the past month and was still weak. This was the first time he'd been allowed outside to play since the illness had begun and the New York evening air was like music. As Carney passed Edward, he shoved him violently to the floor and caught the golf ball. Edward looked up in terror. The ball had been a gift from Captain Nelson some time ago, and it was his most precious possession. That's mine, he said quietly. What did you say? said Carney. The ball. Please give it back to me. This ball? said Carney, holding it high above his head. This is my ball. Please, it was a gift from my grandfather. No, it was a gift from my grandfather. You stole my ball, you little shit. And I don't like it when people steal things from me. Carney's gang began to gather at his side. Edward called for help, but his brothers were all on errands, and his mother was visiting a friend. He scrambled to his feet and tried to flee up the apartment steps, but Carney's hands were at his throat, forcing him down upon the cold stone. Edward felt a crashing pain at the back of his head, and began to weep and scream as Carney's blows began to rain down on his face and the feet of the gang began to kick his entire body until eventually it all went black. When Jimmy arrived home some hours later from his errand, he found his hysterical mother tending to a savagely beaten form on his parents' bed that at first he barely recognised. Gentle little Edward, with his dreamy laugh and his silly golf ball, lay smashed on the bedclothes, his face a swollen mass of colours that Jimmy could hardly believe possible. A doctor gravely tried to reassure a howling Carolyn, but she was inconsolable. Jimmy turned his gaze on Harry, who was himself weeping at the doorway. Who, he said. Carney, replied Harry. Jimmy stormed from the building and stamped the streets for almost an hour, roughhousing all the local bullies for information as to Carney's whereabouts, but coming up empty. It was as he was arriving home that he saw a thriving mass of faces approaching, their eyes fixed on him. He stood at the steps of his home, still stained with the blood of his little brother, and ground his fists. But as they drew nearer, he realised that this wasn't Carney's gang. The word was out that Jimmy was gunning for Willie Carney, and the neighbourhood kids, tired of being pushed around, wanted to watch when Jimmy knocked him into next week. 
What's more, they had located Carney, who was at this very moment beating the bells out of a Jewish kid just three blocks away. The assembled mass whooped with joy as they followed an enraged Jimmy from street to street, and as they marched, more joined their throng until it took fully two minutes for the crowd to pass by the intrigued spectators. When they arrived, the Jewish kid was a mass of bruises and raw flesh. Carney threw him to the floor and grinned, his hands on his hips. Jimmy approached silently, helped the Jewish kid up, and led him to a bench. Hey, he said as he sat the kid down. Is it all right if I take over for you? It's fine with me, came the reply. Jimmy walked back to Carney, who was still out of breath from the pummeling. Take a rest, said Jimmy. I want you nice and fresh. I'm ready now, said Carney. With that, Carney balled up a fist and drew it back. But before he could throw it, Jimmy was on him spitting blows so ferocious that the assembled crowd momentarily fell silent. Carney, shocked, fell backwards, and as he staggered, the fists of Jimmy Cagney began to rip into him. The crowd erupted into a cauldron of screaming as Carney found his feet and began to fight back. But no matter how hard he fought, the image of young Edward lying broken on his mother's bed had turned Jimmy into iron. His blows landed like boiling venom on Willie Carney, whose replies were useless. After 15 minutes of ceaseless battling, the police arrived on the scene, alerted to the brawl by the fierce cries of the crowds, and forcing their way to the heart of the mass, pulled the two boys apart. As they were dragged from each other, Jimmy yelled, I'll be here tomorrow, same time. When the next day rolled around, Cagney arrived to find Carney and his mob hopping in anticipation. Without a word, Jimmy flew straight in, pounding Carney with everything he had. The fight lasted a little longer this time, some 20 minutes, and by the end, Carney had still not yet fallen, and Jimmy was again dragged home, his shirt drenched in the muddy crimson of Carney's blood. That evening, he cleaned himself with a washcloth and cold water, worked ointment into his lacerated knuckles, and visited Edward, who was sleeping alongside his mother. Gently, he ruffled his small brother's hair and blew him a kiss. The next afternoon, Jimmy arrived for round three to find an almost purple Willie Carney, whose left eye was still closed over from yesterday. Again, Jimmy flew into the fight without a word, and the frenzied crowd again began to cheer and scream as Cagney struck Carney again and again, ignoring the white-hot pain in his hands. 
After 10 or so minutes, he heard above the crowd the high voice of a woman who'd climbed onto a trash can and was yelling for calm. These boys are killing each other, she screamed. Somebody call their mothers! From deep within the fight, mere feet from where Jimmy and Willie Carney were doing battle, another woman's head raised itself above the chaos, and the woman on the trash can found herself faced with Carolyn Cagney herself. That's my bloody son, she called out. You shut your mouth. He's doing his family proud. Seconds later, she was back at her son's side, cheering him on. Ignore the silly cow, she shouted to him. Break his bloody neck! Carney, who by now was almost unrecognizable, was failing fast, and Jimmy knew that a well-placed blow would end the fight once and for all. Choosing his moment, he dodged to one side and threw a blow against Carney's jaw so perfect that he was lifted a clear foot from where he stood and landed in a tangle in the arms of his gang. Jimmy was suddenly gripped by an unspeakable agony in his hand and fell into his mother's arms as the cheers of the jubilant neighborhood rang in their ears and carried them home in triumph. The agony turned out to be a fractured wrist, and by the time it had healed, Willie Carney had earned himself a long stretch in a juvenile delinquent hall. In 1916, Carolyn gave birth to another boy, Robert, a tiny, fair-haired child who goggled at his new family with extraordinarily large blue eyes. All the Cagney boys were taken with him, but Jimmy in particular would sit at the side of the cot, cracking jokes at his baby brother, who clutched Jimmy's outstretched, grubby finger with five damp pink ones responding now and then with squeaks and cheeps of his own. Their father had begun to spend more and more time away from the home, and tracking him down once a week for food money was no longer becoming viable. Now some way into their maturity, Jimmy, Harry and Edward decided that it was time to become the Cagney breadwinners and spread out into the city to find employment. Surprisingly, they all landed a job at the New York Public Library, where they were each allotted the position of book custodian, which sounded a great deal loftier than it was. Their job was to scour the tables, benches, and corners for books that had been abandoned or misplaced, and return them to their proper place. For performing this task, the brothers were each paid the sum of $12.50 a month, which always went straight home to Carolyn, and the younger children. Jimmy, in particular, was adamant that his new brother should never be hungry, and took extra work where he could find it. On his free evenings, he worked as a bouncer at the Lennox East Settlement House, and on Sundays, he worked as a ticket clerk at the Hudson River Day Line. Gradually, throughout late 1916 and into early 1917, James Sr., began to drift back to them, to this little household he'd left behind so often in search of oblivion. Perhaps it was the constant warmth, the enchanted blend of his children's ages, 
from late teen to gurgling baby, or the contented, well-fed smile that played lazily around Carolyn Cagney's face when she regarded her family. But the trips to the saloons began to grow altogether more scarce, and the boys would arrive home most evenings to find their broad-shouldered father bouncing young Robert on his knee and singing Irish lullabies in a silken, soft voice. It was late in the autumn of 1917 when Jimmy was awoken by the sound of his mother's screams and rushed to her bedroom to find her clutching small Robert to her chest, her face contorted in agony. He had, for the preceding week, been suffering from a strange malaise and at the age of 13 months, his short life had been claimed by tubercular meningitis. It was hours before she would release the child to stern-faced men who calmed her with condolences and medicine. When she finally relinquished consciousness, she slept fitfully for almost three days, crying out from time to time as Jimmy and his brothers watched helplessly through their own tears. Their father sat motionless and silent in the corner of the living room for almost a day, until finally he fled the apartment and wasn't seen for almost a week when he turned up unconscious on the stoop outside. They nursed him until he woke, vomiting and shivering, but as soon as he could stand, he was gone again, and this time, he did not return. Tales reached them of his nightly self-destruction, of how he'd begun to cough blood, of the beatings he was taking nightly in search of funds for more liquor. Determined not to lose another of her men, Carolyn Cagney made her way to the courthouse and petitioned the judge to jail her husband so that he could dry out. The summons was drawn up, but a family member was required to deliver it into James Senior's hands. Carolyn stood to volunteer, but felt herself eased back into her chair by the firm hand of Jimmy. I'll go, he told her. It was two days later that Jimmy found his father on 80th Street at around 7am, asleep and shivering in a doorway. Surprisingly, James Sr. was almost sober, having not taken a drink for almost 10 hours. Not for want of trying, but because he'd been unable to find the money. His face was sunken and his skin was as desiccated and yellowed as parchment. His fine head of black curled hair was beginning to thin, and his left eye was closed over and swollen in purple and yellow. Jimmy took a seat next to his father on the step and put an arm around his shoulder. Ma's been speaking to the court. They've decided you need to go away for a while. To help you. To where, Jimmy? To the jailhouse just for a little while, so that you can't get to any more rye for a while. 
His father looked down at the papers in Jimmy's hand. I have to give you these, said Jimmy. They're like your ticket. What happens if I don't take them from you, said James Sr. Well, then Ma's heart breaks in two. And I guess mine does too. Because we just can't do anything else for you. The two men said nothing for a long time. And when James Sr. finally looked up at his son, his face was wet with tears. Okay, Jim, said his father. Hand them over. Sorry, Pop, Jimmy said. The following morning, James Cagney Sr. arrived at the courthouse wearing his cleanest shirt shaved and groomed, and watched by Carolyn and the boys as the judge sent him to Blackwell's Island for 60 days. When he returned to his family two months later, he was a much-changed man. The spark of Irish joy and the puppy fat around his cheeks that creased his face into dimples when he laughed was gone. His face was sallow, his hairline receding, and his hands, bony and fidgeting, would quiver constantly. There was no happy laughter, no soft Gaelic warmth in his voice. His eyes strayed distantly beyond his attentive family to some far-off place that they could not see. They were living with a silent ghost who'd been exorcised from the body of their father. Carolyn would not give up on him, though, and willfully she began to draw the colour back into him. A few months later, she told her sons that another baby sibling was on the way. The year was 1918, and although Carolyn's news should have given them cause to celebrate, the family found themselves racked with anxiety. It was the year of the great influenza pandemic. The disease had been contracted by a billion of the world's 1.8 billion inhabitants, over half of the people on the planet at the time. Most affected were those on the battlefields of World War I, a factor that no doubt contributed to the end of the conflict just a year later. But it was the cities and densely populated areas of the world that suffered most from the contagion. Jimmy would make his way to work past the city's cemeteries to see caskets awaiting burial, piled six and seven high. Most vulnerable here were the physically weakened, the young, the old and the pregnant, and between the brothers, it was decided that Carolyn should not leave the apartment building. Each morning, they would venture out into the city to work, and in the evening, return home with money and food to feed the family. And then, one morning, James Sr. took a little longer to rouse himself complaining of a deep-rooted ache in his bones and a swimming sensation when he tried to stand. 
He was immediately packed off to the hospital to be checked over, for fear of infecting his wife. And leaving him at the hospital reception, Jimmy told him that he'd be over to take him home when he'd finished work for the day. When evening came, Jimmy boarded a streetcar and rode to the hospital to pick up his father. At the front desk, he asked an attendant where he could find his father. What's the name? she asked. James Francis Cagney, he replied. The nurse glanced down at her sheet and then slowly looked up at Jimmy. I'm terribly sorry, she said. Mr. Cagney died this morning. Of all the emotions that chased Jimmy and Cagney over the next few days, guilt was the loudest and most cruel. He remembered his father's face as they sat on the step that morning, gaunt and defeated, as he served the papers that would commit him to two months in jail and that would strip him of the last glimmer of Irish sparkle. The empty, vanquished man who returned home to work again at family life and who was stubbed out like a cigarette for trying. Sleep did not find Jimmy for many days, and numbly, he agreed, or maybe volunteered, to take care of the funeral arrangements for the father he'd never really known at all. The heavily pregnant Carolyn gave forth all the cash she could spare, as did all the brothers, and after paying for funeral costs and interment, they were left with only two dollars. Jimmy called on a priest and asked that he give the best funeral service he could for two bucks. The family arrived at the funeral home and waited for the priest, who never came. Silently, they watched James Sr. taken away by a carriage to the cemetery, and between them said their own prayers. At the wake, a minuscule gathering at their apartment, open to all who'd known James Sr., Jimmy watched an assortment of his father's drinking crew turned up, half-pickled, and demanding whiskey to see off their comrade. There's none here, he told them. Your dad would want us to drink to his... God damn it, you aren't going to get any drink here, he said, and promptly threw them out. A few weeks later, with the pain of their father's death still hovering above them like a crow, the Cagney family listened as New York City and the rest of the world celebrated the signing of the armistice that was to end the First World War. The Cagney boys, encouraged by their mother, had begun to spend their scant free time at the Lennox Hill Settlement House, a gathering place for the neighbourhood's kids, where they were put to work at various artistic and social activities. It was here that Jimmy discovered a love for painting, being asked to paint in intricate detail the scenery for their many theatrical productions. 
When the staff who worked there noticed his flair with a brush, they asked him to work on their many posters, advertising dances and other functions. His older brother, Harry, was due to star as a satyr in the settlement house's latest theatrical production. But when the night came, Harry was taken ill. Frantically, the staff cast around for someone to replace him, but there was such an abundance of lines that it soon became apparent that no one would be able to learn the part in time. Excuse me, came a soft voice from the side of the stage. They turned and saw Jimmy, sitting atop a stepladder, paintbrush in hand, his clothes flecked with paint. I've been here the past few weeks working on this backdrop, he said, been listening to the rehearsals. His cheeks flushed pink and he fiddled with the bristles. You think you could help us, Jim? The lady asked. I guess, he said. Jimmy was whisked off to a table where his hair was curled. Makeup was applied. The satyr suit was adjusted. And by the time the show was ready to play, Jimmy had taken his place stage left. Despite a throttling sense of embarrassment about being painted up like a flower, he took a deep breath, walked onto the stage, and without so much as a moment's rehearsal, performed the part faultlessly. On March 25, 1919, Carolyn gave her sons a sister, Jean Carolyn Cagney, a button-nosed tyke that the boys adored above all things. Forever afterwards, Jimmy would say of his mother that she saved the best for last. With money still tight and another mouth now to feed, Jimmy began to cast around for extra work. He was excitedly approached by a co-worker one afternoon and practically dragged from his desk. You need extra cash, right? said the man. Sure, I found something for you, a job you can do in the evenings and it's a cinch. Jimmy was hurried on over to Keith's 86th Street Theatre and hustled in through the back door to join a murmuring line of other young guys who seemed to be filing towards the wings of a stage. What the hell is this? said Jimmy. They're looking for a chorus line, his friend replied. They want guys to dance. Dance? Are you crazy? You wanted cash, you said. I want a burger with pickles, too, but I wouldn't dance for it. I've seen you skipping around the office, said his friend. You're kind of light-footed, and you're kind of light-headed if you think I'm going to dance in a goddamn state show. But Jim, they're paying $30 a week. Jimmy's breath caught in his throat. $30 was almost double his current weekly wage. After all, it was only dancing. He'd skipped about a little at the settlement house and his legs were pretty strong. He turned to the slowly shrinking queue ahead of him and tried to see what was happening on the stage. In small fragments, he caught parts of the dance that the boys were being asked to perform, silently running through the routine in his head. Every now and then, he would raise an arm, turn a little on his heel, and tap out a beat in his head. Nervously, he shuffled forward, until finally, his turn came. Next, came a voice from somewhere in the darkened theatre, and taking a breath, he walked onto the stage. 
The first thing he noticed were the lights, hundreds of them hanging like stars in the darkness past the footlights and blinding him from each direction. Jimmy squinted and made his way to the center of the stage. Name? Came a hollow voice from the dark. Jim. Cagney. Okay, kid. Show us what you got. A piano began to play from the far side of the stage. Jimmy took a breath and began to dance, flinging himself around and following the shapes he'd been memorizing for the past few minutes in the queue. As far as he could tell, the moves were as he remembered them. But then, suddenly... Stop! came the voice. Breathless, Jimmy stopped and peered into the gloom. A few footsteps later, a face came into view. It belonged to Phil Dunning, the producer of the show, who looked Jimmy up and down. I haven't seen you around here before, have I? No, sir. You a dancer? I mean, for a living? I'd like to be. Why? Jimmy grinned. Because it pays $30 a week. My mother's about to have another kid. Dunning smiled. He turned and disappeared back into the blackness of the theater. You're hired, Jim Cagney, he called. Be here tomorrow at four. Oh, and Frank, give him 35 a week. We wouldn't want that baby to starve. The following afternoon at four, Jimmy arrived at the theater to start rehearsals for Dunning's show, Every Sailor, and was hustled through the door by a thin, white-haired man, wearing a harassed expression and a curled cigarette. You're late, croaked the man, and shoved Jimmy up a flight of crooked wooden steps. Get to the stage and find the male chorus. Jimmy flew to the head of the stairs and followed the noise of the wings, where he saw a line of girls in corsets and tutus waiting to run onto the stage. He ran up to the line and tapped the rearmost girl on the shoulder. Hey, honey, where's the male chorus? The dancer turned to him and grinned from behind a five o'clock shadow. You're looking at it, sweetheart. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to continue this epic story immediately, then go on over now to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Hear every thrill, every drama, every heartbreak, every spellbinding moment. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood now at patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. And thank you. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.